Thank you. Morning. Um, did any of you hear about the Tyndale thing on Radio Oxford? Yes. A few of you that are Radio Oxford listeners. Um, that they've decided it's a good event and they're promoting it. So um, that's good. And I don't think we're going to have anything easier to invite people to uh, here, and that will uh, involve a clear gospel message anytime soon. So please be thinking about how that works and who you can invite. Um, just before I get on to all of this fire, uh, just to let you know something that's happening next week is we have a regional celebration gathering when a few other churches that are in our family churches in Oxfordshire will join us, and Steve Thomas will be speaking. I want to give you advance uh, notice of the fact that there will be a special offering next week that is towards a church plant. Uh, As a church, we've been going mm, about 35 years, and on average, we've planted, or we've been key participants, sending leaders and the bulk of people to plant a new congregation roughly once every four years, sort of over the decades. And uh, that's coming round again... (laughs) Uh, uh, Paul and Lottie Metherill, who currently lead Chipping Norton Community Church, have heard clearly from God about moving to Cheltenham. And uh, some people here have already begun to feel that God might be stirring them to join in. We're going to be planting this new church uh, together with those churches that make up the family we call Salt and Light Advance. Those of you that were at our summer camp will have seen what that looks like directly as those churches gathered there. And together, as those 20-odd churches in Salt and Light Advance, we want to make sure that a new plant is well-funded so that it starts robustly and well, quickly reaches a critical mass, and obviously that takes a little bit of money. So next week is an opportunity to invest into what will be a fresh venture in God's kingdom, a fresh church being begun, and um, please pray about how God would have you give towards that and that special offering. Okay, there's lots of fire behind me. Uh, This middle image here about being forged into God's image is one that you're going to see if you're here over the next couple of months because this is what our next Sunday series is going to be all about, how God wants to act in our lives to make us more like him in all kinds of ways. Uh, This morning is a bit of a prequel, if you like. I'm not into that series proper, but rather taking this singular week to comment on something that's uh, important to us spiritually at this moment in the life of Oxford Community Church. We've just finished a series on community, and last week, Lois Fulton finished that series by reminding us that the church is the community of God's children. And those of you who were here will remember uh, this image. Oh, no, that's not the one from last week. But the idea of God inviting us, because we're God's children, we have the right to, to raid the fridge, to come in. And we don't have to ask, but we can go to... We have such confidence in God that he has stored up good things for us, that this is a good image of what the Christian life is like. Uh, There's another phrase to describe this way of life, this raiding the fridge, and that phrase is living by faith. And this morning, uh, I want to share some thoughts from the scriptures about living by faith. Living by faith is clearly central to one particular aspect of our church's future. I don't know how many of you earlier in the year remember seeing this picture. This is on pieces of paper at the back, together with a number of words describing what it's all about. But it's a picture of a number of things that we see in our future as Oxford Community Church. And to the left there are pictures that describe four different goals, things about which God has spoken to us and that we know we need to step forward into. This uh, invitation to live by faith, is clearly central to the development of a school of the Spirit. By a school of the Spirit, that means something through which we expect to see an increase in prayer and an increase in God's miraculous action. And clearly, living by faith 
is central to that. But actually, living by faith is equally important to all of the things that God has for us in the future. One of those other things there is about effective mission. There's something there about training and about speaking God's word into the life of our city. All of those are about, all of those will require of us living by faith. So what does it mean to live by faith? Well, there's a definition given to us at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. To live by faith then is to lean confidently into the future. Don't know how confident you feel about your own future, how confident you feel about the future that we have together as a community of God's people. But faith, to, living by faith, will mean leaning confidently into that future. Hmm, what does that mean? What does that look like in daily life? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 has this one verse at the beginning that defines faith like a dictionary definition, and then about 30 verses that follow that tell stories of what it can look like to live by faith in people's lives. There's Abraham living by faith who obeyed God's call to leave home. There's Joseph living by faith, predicting the exodus from Egypt hundreds of years before it took place. There's Moses living by faith, giving up his royal riches. And the whole of the people of God, Hebrews 11 describes as living by faith as they passed through the Red Sea in that exodus that Joseph had predicted. So we learn what it looks like to live by faith from the stories of God's faithful people, God's full of faith people, those people who have exercised faith, who are living by faith, can show us what it looks like. And I've invited Keith Elmett this morning to help us by telling us a little bit of what it looks like right now for him and for Eileen to live by faith. Good. Um, what I want to uh, share this morning is something of the, the journey that I have been on, we've been on over the last couple of years. Um, and I may end up reading from my script as time goes on, so forgive me if I do that, because it's much easier if you can talk to people and look at them as you're talking to them. But I may just find I need to refer to the script more closely, because the things I do want to say, I make sure I do manage to say, and you'll see why that is in a moment. The story starts for uh, to this fresh sense of what it means to live by faith for me back in June 17, when uh, I had the privilege of going to Lebanon um, with a group of other Christians to do a kind of fact-finding trip to see what was going on in the country of Lebanon, which is remarkable stuff about how the church in Lebanon was reaching out to the millions, literally, of refugees who'd poured in from Syria because of the war. I met a number of refugee Christians who challenged me deeply because they had nothing materially to speak of. Many of them had suffered in all sorts of ways, and as a result of that, they kind of been driven into to Lebanon. But they, they had a radiance and a kind of contentment about them that I found deeply challenging. Um, they'd suffered hugely, and yet they had a way of communicating faith and life and joy that challenged me. And it set me thinking about how would we in the West, how would I respond if I'd gone through some of what they had gone? It's a hypothetical question because you don't experience the grace of God until you're in a situation. Um, but nonetheless, it, it set me thinking quite deeply about what would it be like to walk a road like that. Little did I know how much I would be drawn into a whole new challenge about walking with suffering until a few months later when Eileen got her original diagnosis of breast cancer. 
And we then had 10 months of intensive treatment that involved chemotherapy, surgery, and radiotherapy. All in different ways, a bit uh, brutal at times, but actually uh, effective. And we were clear all the way through that. We were looking to God as our healer. You know, you're, you're thrown into the, all the medical profession can do amazingly for you. But our conviction is that in whatever way the grace of God comes, miraculously or, as it were, through the medical profession, it's God who's behind the healing. He's released his gifts to men as well. He's the source of all knowledge. And these tools were his um, means for bringing us through that. And we were looking to him as our healer. Um, he had not sent the cancer, but as a sovereign God over our lives, we could trust him through the journey. And all the way through, we saw a remarkable number of prayers answered. You know, you're praying the big prayer, God, heal Eileen like tomorrow. That didn't happen. But a whole string of little prayers got answered by comparison. Praying about appointments and timing of appointments, praying about how she'd handle the treatment, praying about uh, all sorts of things to do with that. And we saw so many answered. It was amazing. It was a real boost to, to my faith to know again that God answers prayer. You know, we, we, we pray regularly about stuff, and we never necessarily know the answers. But here we were in a situation and seeing those answers. It was tremendously encouraging. Um, and as a result of all that, um, Eileen was given, ultimately, uh, what it looks like it's all dealt with. She responded really well to treatment. It, it was all sorted. And along with that, these regular visits to the hospital, I found, I mean, apart from that, the times were a bit challenging, hugely kind of sobering because there were just so many different people each week from all stages of life that we saw there who were going through this too and you're thinking how do these folk handle this how how does it work for them we live in a fallen world it's a broken place where things don't operate under our control i'll say that again because i don't know that we always in the west really think that we live in a fallen world it's a broken place where things don't operate under our control. Stuff happens. Sometimes it's unpleasant stuff. Sometimes it's difficult stuff. And none of us can assume we're immune from it. This is not, I'm not trying to sow fear here. I'm talking reality. Because my challenge has been that I think in the West, society at large doesn't know how to handle suffering. And it tries to pretend it doesn't happen. And when it does, we're shocked and we're horrified and we find it very difficult. We often don't know what to say to people who are going through suffering. We kind of withdraw from it. That's not what I saw in Lebanon. In Lebanon, I saw people who, where gratitude flowed from their mouths. It was in their faces. There was a joy in their faces in the midst of suffering that I thought, man, they do know God. And there's a way in which the New Living Translation expresses Psalm 27, verse 13, which I think expressed very much what they were doing. I am confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. They were experiencing God's goodness. And faced up firsthand now to that which previously I had been dealing with secondhand in people's lives, with what we were going through personally, set me thinking. I confess somewhat belatedly to my shame. I had the privilege of working for uh, this community for 10 years as a, as a pastor, working with folk, walking through challenging situations at times with folk. And you, you seek to, to care. You know God loves you. God's with them. But this whole situation that faced me personally set me thinking more deeply. And yet suffering is a very real part of the New Testament. In fact, it's a new part of the Scripture. There are over 65 references to suffering in Scripture. The greater number of those are interesting in the New Testament. And it's the New Testament where suffering is at the heart of that gospel, and yet it triumphs through it. But I would argue that society in the West, as I've said earlier, tries to make us think that we can avoid it in some way. But if, and I think what we have been through made me stand back and think, hang on a minute, and I've had the privilege of, of traveling into various parts of, of the world over the years where you do see a very different world to the one we see here in the West. Where, to be honest, the vast majority of the world, by our standards, is suffering. They don't have the health care. 
They don't have the provision of food. They don't have the provision of fresh water. All sorts of stuff that we take for granted. That when actually, when you've not got it, it's a form of suffering. And beyond that, as many of us are aware, our brothers and sisters across the world, along with others, are suffering fiercely from brutal persecution that is, is more than just kind of a struggle to, to do with life daily. And it's just had me shaping up and thinking more deeply about we need a more realistic perspective on what life's really like. Appreciating the blessings we do have. It's not to diminish those, and, but it's actually to sort of try and grasp a fresh sense of gratitude for what God has given us, while at the same time knowing how to embrace the suffering that actually is all around us. And certainly we found, as we were singing this morning in that chorus, that we can sing in the midst of suffering. Well, that, that was kind of, we came out of that journey, as I said, Eileen was given a very positive sort of go away. It looks like you know, you, there's not a, any evidence of cancer in your, your body now, diagnosis. Uh, one of the doctors said, we wouldn't expect to see you again. But at the end of August this year, that proved not to be the case. And we received some unwanted news that I had a further diagnosis of cancer. It had returned, and this time with a consequence that we're now looking at something that could be more life-limiting. Whereas before, we'd been looking at something where the treatment could actually produce a cure. If we knew before we were in God's hands, we definitely knew it more clearly now. And Seeing that behind me, I thought, yeah, it's a very apt picture for us this morning. We were back in a furnace with more forging going on in our lives than we might have gone looking for. And we had a choice to make afresh. We'd walked this way once before, but this was a fresh fight for faith. Did we believe God was still in control? Was he good? Was he able to heal? Was he still good? Was he still God? even if he didn't heal Eileen immediately. And, yeah, I, I think I do want to mention this point because I've got the furnace behind me. That, for some of you, will bring an echo to something Steve's going to touch on later on. In, in Daniel 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to, to Nebuchadnezzar, we know God can deliver us from the furnace, but even if he doesn't, he's still God and we're going to praise him. And that is, I think, probably, if I'm honest, where we are right now. We know God can heal Eileen right now. But if he doesn't, and she ends up having less time around here with us than she thought she might have done a few years back, he's still God. And we love him. But we were caused to face up to that suffering, not only with the reality of, but now also the reality of death in a new way. And a lot of thoughts have gone through my head in the last month reflecting on on something that now faces you up more starkly than it would normally because we just carry on with life life's good god's with us and i i do want to suggest this morning and it may just be because of where i'm at that as a faith community we do believe in the now and the not yet of the kingdom we know the kingdom of god is real and we know the kingdom of god is breaking into our lives now but it's also a yet kingdom and I wonder how much we focus on the yet. We rightly are concerned to see more of God in our lives now. We're pursuing a school of the Spirit because we want to see more of the supernatural evidently in our lives because we know God's a powerful God. But do we have a yet in our thinking as well? You go back a generation or two, and the church thought very differently. Now, in part, that's because God wanted to do something new in this whole breakout of the Spirit of God and bring him in renewal to the church. But I wonder along the way if we've also missed something. This is a quote in the foreword to a book written by a guy called David Watson. Many of you here will probably never have heard of David Watson, but others of you will have done, because he was an Anglican minister at the forefront of the charismatic renewal back in the 70s and 80s in this country. And he die by our standards prematurely of cancer and he's written a book about his journey in those last years of his life entitled fear no evil another guy who some of you will have heard of an eminent christian theologian called jim packer wrote the foreword to the book in which he says thinking back about the past recent more recent years 
Our people die well, said John Wesley. Wesley was celebrating God's grace among the Methodists. Until recently, a good death was seen as the godly man's crowning achievement, the climax of his good life. And that is why tracts on the art of dying were among the first printed books in all European languages. From the 16th to the 19th centuries, when most adults died in the presence of families and friends, great importance was attached to a Christian's deathbed sayings. Things are, of course, different today. Death's replaced sex as the great unmentionable. All stress among Christians is laid on the present knowledge and enjoyment of God. And the old awareness, the only one who's ready to die, can live to God's praise, has generally been forgotten. Something to reflect on there. And in various conversations and prayers we've had with people, we've learned, we learned about a talk that a guy called Dave Oliver had done. Dave Oliver was somebody who was one of the senior leaders in the Basingstoke Church, linked to our family of churches here in Oxfordshire, the whole sort and light family. And Dave's family went through a difficulty, if you want to call it that, back in December 18, when their 38-year-old son, Joel, died fairly suddenly of cancer. And Dave, out of that, had done some kind of digging around, a lot of praying, and ended up being asked to give a talk at a camp this summer, Salt and Light Sphere camp, similar to our supernatural advance, on heaven. And somebody told us about this talk, and we got to listen to it. Now, we had a really kind of, for us, funny family evening. It was about 10 o'clock at night, and we decided we were doing, we've been WhatsApping, the wonder of WhatsApp these days with our kids, one of who's in Manchester, the other one who's in Africa. And saying, yeah, we've, we've just been listening to this talk by a guy called Dave Oliver, and he's written a book, and we're going to order a copy of the book all about it, heaven, because we find it really helpful. And separately, and pretty much instantly, both my daughters came back with, yeah, we've listened to that talk, Dad, and, and we've ordered a copy of the book too. I thought, okay, slow on the uptake there, Keith. But anyway, kindness of God that our kids were involved in this journey with us. But in his talk, Dave poses the following question about heaven and our attitude, which I invite you to reflect on. He says, am I longing to go there? Obviously talking about heaven. Am I longing to go there, but willing to stay here? Or am I longing to stay here, but willing to go there? Paul grapples with that in his letters to the Philippians, where he ends up saying, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. It's not about waiting around, hoping Jesus will come back, sort of a mindset, you know, just sitting around doing nothing. No, we're citizens of the kingdom. We're seeking more of the desire of the kingdom of God to break into our lives now. But I think part of the forging that's going on, certainly for me, I think for us, is that we do this journey right now with an even stronger expectation that there really is a far greater destiny that we will have than just a better life here and now. So the past few weeks have been a new journey of faith for us. We found life and new rhythm of prayer in the mornings and last thing at night. We've seen God answer those prayers for immediate things, just like we did a couple of years back. We've experienced the family of God as an amazing supportive community. I think it's fair to say our level of peace has deepened and strengthened over these weeks, despite the physical pain that Ireland can experience, which, when you're kind of next to somebody you love, can be quite distressing. But I have a growing conviction about the importance of the reality of heaven impacting upon our daily life. And we're trusting God for the rest of the journey. Let's just take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you for Keith and Eileen. We thank you for their love for us in this church, their love widely shared um, generously with others. Thank you for their wisdom. Thank you for their faithfulness and that they are for us full of faith people from whom we may learn. We pray you'd strengthen them. 
pray that you'd fill them with your spirit. And we do pray for healing in Jesus' name. And we thank you that at the same time, you're taking Eileen to that place of longing to be with you, but willing to stay here. Hem them in, Lord, as your word says, behind and before. Thank you that there is no place that they can go on the far side of the sea or in the depths that is apart from you. And as Keith's been vulnerable on their behalves this morning, Lord, protect them, fill them up, strengthen them. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're going to turn in just a moment to Daniel chapter 3 and the story there of a furnace. If you have a Bible, you might like to go there. And really, this is an an exploration of what it's like when you've heard Lois's sermon or read Pete Carter's book about raiding the fridge, and your experience of the fridge is that when you go to it, uh, it doesn't click at all. (laughs) It looks like this. what's What's faith like then? In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 8. These are, this is the period in which the Jewish people had been exiled to Babylon, their nation overtaken, and um, they were being forcibly brought into the life of the Babylonian empire. The, their names were changed to erase their cultural history. And here's this story. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you've set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve nor your gods, nor worship the image of gold that you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold that I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you're ready to fall down and worship the image I have made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then, what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace... The God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you've set up. And the story goes on to tell how they're thrown into the blazing furnace and they're saved. And Nebuchadnezzar honors the God of the Hebrews and they find promotion and, and protection. If you'd, we'd read on in Hebrews 11 earlier, in all of the stories of faith lived out, one of those is about people who, through faith, quenched the fury of the flames. This is one of those situations. I want to draw out from this three aspects of faith that we can see in this story. The first is to do with the fact that faith is a stable thing. Faith is a stable thing. At least these three men had, what we can see in the story, 
what we might call a mature faith. In his Institutes of Christian Religion, Calvin gives us this definition of faith. It is a firm and sure knowledge of God's favor towards us. Let me say that again. It is a firm and sure knowledge of God's favor towards us. It's founded on the promise given in Christ, revealed to our minds and sealed upon our hearts by the Holy Spirit. It's a wonderful Trinitarian definition of faith. Faith, then, is a settled confidence in God's goodness. Faith is a settled confidence in God's goodness. And to make that a little bit clearer, maybe we can put it this way, that to have no faith is, that's what it's like when you're not trusting God to be good. That's that's no faith. But there's another thing, which is what we might call an unstable faith, which is only sometimes trusting God to be good, mostly in those moments when you go to the fridge, open the door, and it's full of everything, you know, you, you pray for something and it happens, and God's good, because look, he's just done this thing for me. But in those moments when you go to the fridge, as it were, and there's an overripe banana, or you pray for your friends to be healed and they're not, you pray for your debts to be relieved and, and they're not, or whatever it may be, in those moments, the person with unstable faith doesn't trust that God's good. It doesn't look like he's good. I'm not sure I believe he's good. It's an unstable faith. Then there's this mature faith that we see in the story in Daniel, steadily trusting God to be good in all circumstances. This is the mature faith expressed by Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And they say, whatever happens, we're going to praise God. Now, you praise someone who is good for, the, for their goodness. That's what praise is all about. So whatever happens, we're going to praise God. They were confident in God's goodness. And they said, we will hold him to be good and worthy of praise at all time. The New Testament talks about faith that is uh, unstable, like the waves of the sea that move around, and contrasts that with a mature faith that is stable, that trusts that God's at work at all times, that nothing can separate us from his love, that his love is consistent, and we may trust in his consistent love. This passage calls us onwards to a more stable faith. Here's another thing that we can see in the story in Daniel. Uh, That's a picture that somebody painted of the Jews being carried out from Jerusalem when they were exiled. And to appreciate the nature of the mature faith that these men had, it helps us to remember that they belonged to a community that had experienced suffering. Theirs was a faith that had undergone suffering. The whole Jewish community in Babylon had suffered injury. They'd been dragged from their homes and driven into exile. Theirs was a generation like the Syrian refugees in Lebanon, or the uh, Yazidis or Rohingyas who'd been driven from their homes. Theirs was a generation like the Africans carried to the Americas as slaves. It's no coincidence that this generation was the one that wrote Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept. We hung up our lyres and we could not sing. We were asked to sing, we could not sing. No coincidence that Psalm 137 was taken up by the descendants of slaves in America to express their experience of suffering. Such suffering can lead to bitterness. Such suffering can undermine faith in God's goodness. So often people reduce their belief in God to match their experience. It's thought that Charles Darwin lost his faith when his five-year-old daughter died. Not much to do with fossils affecting his faith. And yet for these Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
the suffering that they witnessed and whatever they experienced, it somehow produced in them a mature faith, a settled confidence in God's love. And there's a proverb that I believe helps us to understand this. It's Proverbs chapter 27, verse 6, where it says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Which is to say, we need, to be, we need not to draw a tight line between whether we've enjoyed an experience or not, and whether we attribute love to the person behind it. There are times when enemies will be ever so nice to us. And there are times when friends will injure us, but it's okay. Um, I find it helpful to make this, uh, this isn't in the scripture, this is just me making something up, but I find it helpful to think about uh, surgery. (laughs) You know, if someone came up to you in the street with a knife and offered to cut you open, you'd feel very differently about it to if a surgeon with a knife offered to cut you open because of what you understand of their motive and indeed of their skill. So my version of this is better the knife of a surgeon than the embrace of a mugger. I think that's true. In Hosea chapter 6, I'm not sure if I've got this on the PowerPoint. Oh, I do. It says this, Come, let's return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. He will come to us like rain, as the spring rains that water the earth. And so here is a key to developing a stable faith, a consistent trust in God's goodness. Let us return to the Lord. In the midst of suffering, we're invited to follow the example of the prodigal son about whom Lois preached last week. The prodigal son who resolved to return to the father and tell him just what he was thinking. Let's return to the Lord. Turn to him, and we can tell him just what we're thinking. Let's not allow our disappointments to draw us to wrong conclusions about the nature of God. When he has made his love known through sending his son, displayed his love by dying for our sins. No, instead, let's walk aches, pains, questions, frustrations, wounds, and all. Let's walk towards the Father's house and prepare to tell him just what we think. We can be open with God concerning our pain. It's okay for us to to say that we don't understand it, to say that we don't like it, but that we also don't like the fact that disappointment has left us bitter and cynical. It's okay for us to confess to God that we impose limits on our expectations of his power and we call it wisdom and prudence when the truth is more accurately that we just don't trust him all that much. Because of what Jesus has done at the cross, paying the price... For all such culpable distrust of our Creator, we can turn to God, we can tell Him all about it, and we can invite Him to make us whole again. We need to expose the wound before God, allowing Him to come close and remove any shrapnel. Church, let's make it our habit to return to the Lord and let him bandage and irrigate our souls. There is a faith that is matured through suffering, and through it gains stability. Here's another thing. that It's not just in Daniel chapter 3. We need to look back over the previous couple of chapters, but how did these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, get to this place of confidence? 
Our God is able, our God will, we're going to praise him anyway. Where did that come from? Well, in Daniel chapter 1, the story is told of um, how these four lads were taken into the royal training facility and renamed, processed and renamed, and then invited, or given, not invited, told to start a diet which was counter to Jewish, uh, the, the commands of God in, in the law of Moses. And what happens in chapter one is Daniel steps out in faith and talks to the person in charge of them and says, stop feeding us that, feed us this instead. We're trusting God, it's going to be okay. And then it says that our, the story just tells us it's just Daniel that stepped out and said it. And, but the consequence was that all of the boys got a changed diet. And what happened was that 10 days later, all of these boys, Hebrew boys who'd had the changed diet, they all looked healthier than those on the richer diet. And God had acted in their lives. Daniel stepped out in faith. They watched. I wonder what they were thinking. I mean, it it doesn't tell us. But they weren't having the conversation along with Daniel, with the head of everything. They were, who knows where they were. Daniel stepped out in faith, but they experienced the good of it. What, there's no record that they had any active involvement, but they, they saw something. Daniel chapter 2, there's another story. This time, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who does seem to be a genuinely unreasonable character, uh, he had a troubling dream, and he demanded that someone interpret his troubling dream without being told what he dreamed, else all the royal advisors would be killed. You know, we think our government might not always govern well, but that's really unreasonable. And our four guys, Daniel and then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they they were all in the group that would be killed. Daniel asked for time. So again, Daniel steps forward and says, oh, hang on, there's something that God might do here. But this time, he invites the other guys to pray with him. It's there in chapter 2. He says, let's pray and plead to God for mercy that God would reveal the mystery. This time, the other lads join in this act of faith. They pray. God reveals to Daniel the content of the dream and its interpretation. And again, there's a wonderfully positive outcome. And they're promoted and their God is honored. And so what we can see here is a stepwise development of their faith, leading them to stretch out more and more. They started not having to play an active role in trusting in God's goodness, but they were brought along a journey of increasing trust in God's goodness a little bit at a time, which got them to a place of maturity. It's not only the endurance and the turning to God through suffering that leads to a stable faith, but it's also the repeated experience of being stretched in faith that leads to a mature and stable faith that has confidence in God for situations bigger than we've seen before. And so we find them in chapter 3 and verse 18 saying, we expect that God will save us. Well, they've got chapter 2 in the bag, haven't they? When they were all going to be killed once already before, God intervened. Daniel led the way. They got taught about faith. I've already said from Hebrews 11, there's this great list of stories of full of faith people from whom we can learn. Well, by the grace of God, that still works for us like it worked for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had Daniel that led them on in faith. But we've also got people in the church community that have gone further in their walk in faith than we yet have from whom we can learn. There are believers around us with a more mature faith, who can draw us into their walk with God, and through that, our own expectation of seeing God's goodness in all kinds of practical ways can grow. Uh, 
when Bev and I were first leading a small group in the life of Oxford Community Church, we had a young single woman from West Africa in our group who uh, eventually confessed to us a struggle that she had where she was waking up in the middle of each night and having panic attacks and lying on her kitchen floor utterly terrorized. And we, how old, we were like 22, 23, didn't, you know, we didn't, we, we, went, we were kind, we like made cups of tea. Um, but what we did, it's great to see Lorraine sit on the front row this morning, we, we went with this young woman and we spent an evening with Steve and Lorraine Thomas, who knew some of the questions to ask um, to discover what was going on. It turned out that this poor woman had been taken to West Africa. She's lived in Britain, but taken back to West Africa in her early teens, subject to a genital mutilation in the context of, um, like, a, the, the, the village witch doctor had done something. And since that time, she'd been overshadowed not only by a physical scar, but by a kind of dark spiritual presence. Well, um, then <laughs> Stephen Lorraine prayed, trusting God's goodness sure and certain knowledge of God's favor, we could pray that God would deal with this, that he would set her free from this dark spiritual presence, that the panic attacks need not last, because God is good and intervenes. And, uh, and by the end of the evening, she was different, altered, and, and healed of the the, the psychological damage that had led to these panic attacks, she was changed. We, we had experienced something a little bit like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego with Daniel charging ahead saying, no, God's got this. And now we pray with confidence for people to be set free from all manner of demonic oppression. Uh, I see... Um, Keith and Stuart right behind each other there. I was remembering, I looked up the date, the 15th of November, 2011. Uh, there had been a vision given to us as a, that we were sort of incubating as a church about starting a school in Oxford. And um, then the goalposts were moved by the government. Uh, and they said, instead of having seven months in which to apply for uh, starting a new school in Oxford, we had three months, and we decided we'd take the jolly to, to London anyway for a meeting in a nice London club and uh, say, uh, say to the people from, that we were meeting with to try to put a plan together, oh, well, <laughs> it was a nice idea, <laughs> but not for now. And there was a wonderful woman there named Aradi Pizzieli um, who just chastised... This is another way faith sometimes works. She just chastised us, really, she just said, like, what is wrong with you people? Um, like, like, of course we can do this. Um, I, yeah, you remember that well. And, and um, she, said, she said something like, um, I've seen entire schools go from vision to opening in three months. You've just got to put a piece of paper together. Get on with it. <laughs> it, was so, it was something to that effect. Um, but you know what? She was, she's a follower of the Lord Jesus who'd seen God's goodness intervene. And someone else in that meeting, Russell Rook, said to us, what you'll find when you enter into this process is you will find the favor of God. It will be like a tailwind following you, and things will happen better than you currently think they will. It was true. We got the bid in. The school's open. There's a choir concert going on here. In, uh, in, in a couple of months' time, where they're expecting hundreds and hundreds of people to come and hear about Jesus because there's life and there's love in a school that came about because someone with a more mature faith told us about it and invited us in. Um, I think, thinking of Christmas events, I was thinking of a couple of Christmases ago when one of our friends who... Uh, was not a Christian, turned up to the carol service. And Rich Colebrook, whom some of you will know, was here for a number of years and is very much gifted as an evangelist, sidled up to Bev and said, that friend of yours, you know, she's ready to turn to Jesus today. Just go and ask her. Which neither of us would have done. But Bev did, 
And indeed, she turned to Jesus right there in, in that moment. Because there was a faith. And that's a more sort of gift-specific faith. Richard, it's not just because he's lived longer. He's, he's long had that, that's, that gift of faith for an expectation of people to turn to Jesus and gets to share it with other people and raise our faith. So where does this take us all? I mean, the reason for saying all of this this morning is that right now as a church, God's given us this vision for a school of the Spirit with supernatural activity and an increase in the miraculous. And there, it's not only Eileen, but there are several people around in the church with significant health issues that have come up right in the moment that we're starting to focus more on, on this vision, this call. Uh, we need a more mature understanding of faith, which doesn't... It's not doesn't flip-flop around like the waves of the sea. Oh, God's given us a word about the school of the Spirit, so yay, he's good. Someone's been diagnosed with cancer. Oh, maybe he's not. We need a firm and certain knowledge that though sometimes when we go to the fridge, it's not got in it all the things that we'd hoped for, nonetheless, it's in the Father's house, and the Father is good, and, and he cares for us, and, and he knows what we need. Um... If your dreams have died, can you find a more mature Christian who has overcome a similar loss and learn from them? Pray with them. If you have a heart for physical healing, a a longing to see that, can you get alongside someone who more regularly sees miracles of healing and take steps of faith together? See, there's something about us doing this together. God's calling us together to grow in faith, and though our faith may be under fire at times, uh, we may return to the Lord, that he will bandage us, and we can grow together as we stretch out in faith. There's a season that God has for us um, of growing stability, growing confidence, but also all kinds of stretch. So Father, thank you. You are indeed good at all times. Thank you for the testimony, what we read in your word and the testimony of your saints this morning. God, we pray that you'd help us to see you as you truly are, not to allow our experiences to lead us to a cut-down set of beliefs in you. Help us to understand your glory, your wonder, your love, your good and pleasing and perfect will. And Lord, may your kingdom come. Amen. Steve and thanks Keith